Coming up, American football star Tony Dorsett is the latest high-profile victim of traumatic brain injury. My memory is getting worse and worse as the days go by. I'm really short-tempered. Frankly, I'm depressed. We take a look at how scientists are trying to understand the condition. Plus, why big groups are better than small ones at improving social skills. And a compound that can help treat chronic infections when antibiotics fail. This is The Nature Podcast for November the 14th, 2013. I'm Thea Cunningham. And I'm Noah Baker. This week, Kerry flew to California to attend the annual Society for Neuroscience conference. Here she is with a look at how scientists are trying to understand an increasingly common condition, traumatic brain injury. November the 11th is Veterans Day, a national holiday in the US commemorating those who fought for America and observed here in San Diego as in other cities. Just a couple of streets away from this parade, neuroscientists are reporting their work on the effects of combat on the brain. One of the signature conditions of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan is traumatic brain injury, or TBI. It can be caused by any head injury, but it's often a result of blasts. Up to 20% of Iraq veterans, 300,000 people, have some level of TBI. Fiona Crawford, president of the Roskamp Institute in Florida, has been working with the US Army to find markers of TBI that could help diagnose the condition. Um, one, of the, one of the pieces of work that I've been engaged with, with, with my colleagues in, in the Army here, is to recruit soldiers pre and post deployment uh, to the current conflict in, in Afghanistan. And we've taken blood samples from these soldiers and we've been looking at what the changes are in their blood pre and post deployment and how that relates to any clinical diagnoses that they may have whenever they return from deployment. So in particular, we've been focusing on uh, soldiers who come back with a diagnosis of traumatic brain injury or of post-traumatic stress disorder or of a combination of the two. And of course, both of these are, are major concerns in, in the military at this time. And you found differences in some levels of, I suppose we can call them fats, lipids in the blood. Yes, uh, we, we've looked at proteins and we've looked at, at lipids and we've used pretty sophisticated uh, techniques to profile the proteins and lipids in the blood. And what we see is that uh, when, we, when we look at the, these profiles, we're, we're actually looking at dozens and hundreds actually of, of different lipid species and of different proteins. And the idea is that there may be particular signatures, particular lipids and particular proteins that will be, will be different, will be present at different levels in the blood of individuals with post-traumatic stress disorder or with TBI as compared to individuals with, with neither diagnosis. And, and yes, in the, in the study at this time, we do see specific changes, biomarker profiles from, from blood that will help us to, to diagnose these conditions. These signatures are useful for diagnosis because psychologically the effects of TBI can look very different from one person to the next. But these measurements don't necessarily tell you how to treat the condition. For that, you need to do animal studies. Here's Stuart Lipton from the Sanford Burnham Medical Research Institute in La Jolla here in California. We've used a model, it's a poster here at the Society for Neuroscience, which is a helium 
blast model of a small pipe aimed at the head of a mouse. And using that model, we see the development not only of mild traumatic brain injury, but subsequently uh, behavioral tests that mimic PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, and eventually the neuropathological deficits that we see with chronic traumatic encephalopathy. It turns out that in that disease, you develop phosphorylated tau protein, much like you do in frontal temporal dementia. And so we've been able to follow that in these mice and develop potential therapies for that. Their mouse model, Lipton says, mimics the effects of the battlefield, but also the sports field. In sports like American football, head injuries are a big risk. Just a few days ago, the sports network ESPN reported on the case of Tony Dorsett. Tony Dorsett experienced moments of glory. He also took blows to the head, and he still deals with the consequences. My memory is getting worse and worse as the days go by. Um, my short-temperedness, I'm, I'm really short-tempered. Clinically, I'm depressed. At his lowest moments, Dorsett says he has thought about suicide. Dorsett says he wanted answers that could explain his symptoms. So he decided to get tested for chronic traumatic encephalopathy, or CTE, a brain disease caused by head trauma and linked to depression and dementia. Dorset is the latest in a high-profile string of players who have developed a condition called chronic traumatic encephalopathy, which often causes depression and even suicide. Postmortems on sufferers have yielded higher than normal levels of a protein called tau, also implicated in Alzheimer's. This gave Lipton and his team an idea. And so we've now come up with a drug. So I'm, as a full disclosure, I'm the developer of a drug, Memantine, or Nemend in the United States, which is approved for Alzheimer's disease. Honestly, it doesn't work that well. It works a little bit. Uh, but over the past uh, several years, my colleagues and I have been developing, developing a better disease-modifying derivative of Memantine called Nitromemantine, which is basically a concatenation of nitroglycerin and memantine. These kind of drugs block excessive activity of a glutamate receptor. So glutamate, monosodium glutamate, the same thing you get in Chinese food. It's a major excitatory chemical in the brain. So we find, and we're not the first to do this, but in many diseases, a particular subset of those glutamate receptors called NMDA receptors, they get overexcited. And so we have formulated these drugs that block that excessive activity, and they seem to be very neuroprotective. Since Lipton's study is in mice, and the drug is new and not approved for human use yet, he can't say whether it could be used in cases like Dorset's. But are some people just more sensitive than others? I asked Fiona Crawford whether her results suggested that even before any head injury, some people had biological profiles that suggested they'd be more likely to fare badly. Immediately, she gave me the example of a gene variant, ApoE4. Actually, I could say right now uh, that based on, on genotype, uh, there are certainly folks who really should never, ever go into a situation where they might sustain a head injury. We know that ApoE influences outcome after TBI, and we know that individuals who have one or two copies of the E4 allele do significantly worse after a head injury than folks who do not have an E4 allele. But we need the troops, and these guys, they, they want to do what they want to do. You talk to the football players, you know, they want to play. That was Fiona Crawford, and before her, Stuart Lipton. For The Nature Podcast, I'm Kerry Smith.
Coming up later in the research highlights how Vikings may have sacrificed slaves as grave gifts and why unfriendly bacteria in our guts may leave us vulnerable to bad joints. But first, we rely on antibiotics to fight off a whole host of infections which we can pick up, from tonsillitis to tuberculosis. But there are some types of chronic infections where antibiotics just don't make the grade. These infections are caused by biofilms, a sort of slimy collection of bacterial cells which coat infected areas, blocking out the immune system. Unlike immune cells, antibiotics are able to penetrate these biofilms, but they still don't manage to clear up the infection. But now, scientists may have found a solution. I spoke to Kim Lewis from Northwestern University, asking why regular antibiotics have such a hard time fighting off these chronic infections. The culprit uh, are persister cells. So within the population of the biofilm, there's a very small number of cells that go into a dormant state. Uh, they don't divide, don't grow, shut down their metabolism. And in order to kill the regular antibiotics, need active functions. Functions are inactive, antibiotics do not kill. And that is an enormous problem uh, with chronic infections. So how can you go about attacking these persister cells? We had to look for something uh, that uh, in a persister will activate a function, will corrupt it, uh, force it to kill the cell, and will do all those things in the absence of energy. So that sounded like a, a pretty uh, far-fetched proposition. Uh, but actually, there is a compound that uh, uh, the industry looked at and, uh, and dropped for a variety of reasons that uh, seemed to possibly fill this bill. And that is uh, acyldepsipeptide, or ADEP. Uh, it was discovered by scientists from Eli Lilly in uh, 1985, then uh, was also looked by a group from Bayer who found that this compound uh, activates a protease in the cell. So proteases are, are proteins that break up other uh, proteins. Uh, normally, this protease in the bacterial cell does a very specific thing. It gets rid of denatured proteins, proteins that went bad. So kind of a cleaning up operation. Uh, but in the presence of this compound, we find that this protease becomes uh, virtually nonspecific, starts degrading uh, essential proteins in the cell, and s essentially forces the cell to self-digest, and it doesn't matter whether that cell is growing, dormant, persister. Uh, so it, that compound has an ability to sterilize an infection. Is there the same worry that bacteria will start becoming resistant to, to this drug as well? Uh, yeah, it's a good point. So the resistance to ADEP develops pretty readily, and it develops because the protease is not essential for the cells. Uh, so mutants that do not make the protease, they're completely resistant to ADEP. Uh, that happens with a high probability, and that is why Bayer dropped this compound from development. Uh, but since we now know that the compound has the capability of very effectively killing cells, we decided to pair it with a conventional antibiotic, like rifampicin, uh, to stem the propagation of resistant cells. This combination completely sterilized. So what we found is that these mutants that do not have the protease, they're wimpy, and they become susceptible to killing by any antibiotic, essentially. And that's why we get sterilization when we combine ADEP with virtually any other antibiotic. And that, of course, solves the problem of resistance. Could this be one step towards combating antibiotic resistance in the future? 
Well, using combinations of antibiotics in general is, of course, a, a good idea to combat resistance. Uh, but let me tell you what specifically uh, I think would be very useful in using a compound like ADEP to combat resistance. Uh, one of the major causes of resistance is a large lingering population of the pathogen, which happens in patients with chronic infections. If you can rapidly sterilize and get rid of that large population, you then get rid of an enormous source of resistance acquisition by pathogens. So this sounds very exciting now. How likely is it that we're actually going to see these kinds of drugs anytime soon? Well, I, I think that's quite realistic because uh, in the case of uh, infectious diseases, efficacy in an animal model is actually a pretty good predictor of uh, efficacy in humans. Uh, so I think it is entirely realistic. We are working in collaboration with a biotech company to develop this and, uh, compound and also improved analogs which have better pharmacological properties. That was Kim Lewis of Northwestern University. You can read the paper at nature.com forward slash nature. There's also a News and Views article about the paper on the same site. Now it's time for the research highlights read by Charlotte Stoddart. Burial rituals were a big part of Viking life, and new evidence suggests that slaves were sacrificed and buried with their masters. Researchers in Norway have studied the remains of six burial sites on the Norwegian island of Flakstad. Each burial contained at least one skeleton missing its skull. The team extracted mitochondrial DNA from the remains to assess ancestry, and they analysed isotopes to learn about diet. They discovered the individuals weren't maternally related, and the intact individuals ate more meat than the headless ones, suggesting they were of a higher social status. The authors think the beheaded individuals might have been slaves offered as grave gifts. Find that paper in the Journal of Archaeological Science. Unfriendly bacteria in our guts may make us more susceptible to arthritis. Arthritis develops when the immune system mistakenly attacks normal cells, leading to inflamed joints. Now, researchers in New York have linked one of these bacteria to the onset of rheumatoid arthritis. They found that people who'd been recently diagnosed with arthritis harboured more of a bacteria called Prevotella copri. When they injected P. copri into mice, the levels of friendly bacteria in their guts dropped. These friendly bacteria helped to quieten the immune system, so the mice became more sensitive to colitis, which can manifest in arthritis. Read more in eLife. Do you ever stare at airplanes or your smartphone and marvel at how our species has evolved to produce such wizardry? Well, it takes time. Cultural evolution, like its biological counterpart, progresses in small steps, slowly building on progress made by others. This propensity for so-called cumulative culture is unique to our species. Scientists have been trying to explain how we manage to maintain skills and innovate over generations, given that the transmission of information is generally imperfect because we make mistakes. One theory is that being in large groups improves the chances of perfect transmission, but up to this point no one has empirically measured the effect. Maxime Derex of the University of Montpellier 2 in France took up the challenge. He and his team used computer games to test the effect of group size on cultural evolution. T. 
teams of varying size were asked to draw virtual arrowheads and fishing nets over a series of trials. It turns out that group size does matter. Jeff Marsh gave Maxime a call. What makes human culture special? Today, we know that animals have culture, but animal cultural traits do not seem to change across time. On the contrary, human culture evolves quickly and changes uh, across generations. Uh, it's what we call uh, cumulative culture. Uh, what was previously known about how complex culture evolves? It was proposed that group size could affect cultural innovation because in large groups, more individuals try to copy. So the probability to observe a perfect copy event simply increases with the number of copies. OK, so according to theory then, this perfect transmission of ideas, copying a skill properly, and even innovation, is thought to be more likely in a bigger population just because there's more people doing the copying. Exactly. OK, so in essence, what you wanted to specifically measure then was the effect of group size on the evolution of cultural complexity. Yes, exactly. In our experiment, we used the computer game to study the effect of group size on cultural evolution. That sounds kind of surprising to me. First of all, that you are choosing to study culture in a lab, of all places. Yes, it's quite uh, recent to try to reproduce uh, cultural evolution uh, in the lab. But we need this kind of approach to better understand cultural evolution. OK, then. So tell me about these computer games, these tasks that you had your volunteers do. Players were placed in groups of different sizes and have to learn and exploit a simple or a complex virtual task. Our simple task involved drawing an arrowhead, and the complex task involved uh, building a fishing net. And at the beginning of the game, players could benefit from a demonstration about how to perform each of the two tasks. And then players had 15 trials to improve, and between each trial, players could use social information by looking additional demonstration for one of their group members. Okay, so at the end of each trial then, your participants could see not only how well they'd done, but how well everyone else had done in their group. So how did group size affect the evolution of culture? There was a clear effect. Larger groups are better than smaller groups at maintaining and improving cultural knowledge. Performance associated with the simple task was kept stable in smaller groups and improved in larger groups. And on the contrary, performance associated with the complex task deteriorates in smaller groups and kept stable in larger groups. OK, so this would suggest then that large population size could almost be a prerequisite for the evolution of cultural complexity. Definitely. OK, and as you mentioned then, those small groups also actually lost that knowledge. So it would also suggest that being in a small group is a dangerous thing. Yes, our results suggest that uh, in our evolutionary past, uh, group size reductions may have exposed human society to significant risk, including societal collapse. Yeah. And also then, looking back at the history of our species, when we see these periods of kind of explosions in, in ideas, do you think that population expansion could have had something to do with that? curious is that in our evolutionary past, uh, cultural complexity appears in different places and at different times, 
And in the light of our results, uh, it suggests that the modification of group size could allow the emergence of cumulative culture. Is this still true today now that we have kind of mass storage? You know, I can copy things from any number of people off my iPhone, for example. It's not just a problem of information. For example, if you try to play tennis, uh, you can look uh, some video on uh, YouTube, but it's not enough to play correctly. If there is a lot of people uh, who try to play tennis, the probability to observe a good player is just higher in large groups. So you think the theory might still apply then, even today, given modern technologies? There is probably an effect of group size on cultural uh, complexity, even uh, today. That was Maxime Derricks talking to Jeff Marsh. News time now, and joining me in the studio is Kat DeLang and Richard Van Norden. Richard, first, you've brought with you news of an even bigger Large Hadron Collider. The Large Hadron Collider is a pretty big machine. It's 27 kilometres round. The Very Large Hadron Collider, which would be the next machine that physicists might build, is going to be 100 kilometres around, and it would run at seven times the energy of the Large Hadron Collider. So pretty mammoth. And is it being built again in Switzerland? Well, at the moment, it's just a figment of the imagination. So this was a proposal presented in November at an advisory panel at the US Department of Energy. And where this uh, machine would be built is not very clear. The Americans are are quite excited by this. Uh, Michael Peskin, who's a physicist at the SLAC National Accelerator Laboratory in California, he wants it to be built perhaps in America. But CERN, where the Large Hadron Collider is built, also has its own study of a very high-energy Large Hadron Collider that would pass under Lake Geneva and might also be 80 to 100 kilometres around. Construction might begin in the 2020s on that, says Michael Benedict, a physicist at CERN. And why do we need an even bigger machine? Well, essentially, the story of particle physics over the last you know, 50 years has been just keep colliding things together at higher energies to discover ever more fundamental building blocks of nature. And the Large Hadron Collider found that uh, there was a Higgs particle, there was a Higgs field. This is why particles have mass. So that was what it was built for. But there's lots of questions we don't understand, like why is the mass of the Higgs particle so big? Maybe there's a theory called supersymmetry in which the known particles are coupled with heavier ones. Maybe to see this kind of coupling, we need to build even bigger accelerators than the Large Hadron Collider, which hasn't detected any supersymmetry yet. So that's the idea. But, you know, this is going to be very, very expensive, and it's going to require more than hand-waving arguments to um, fork out the multi-billions of dollars that's going to be required to build this machine. So uh, there's a centre in Beijing called the Centre for Future High Energy Physics that's going to be launched next month. And part of the mission of that is going to explore the physics that a future collider might investigate and really identify the machine size that will kind of maximise the science gain per dollar. Okay, thanks, Richard. Now over to you, Kat. Kat, you've written a feature this week about male circumcision in Africa as part of a campaign to reduce the spread of HIV. Where does this thinking come from? Well, the biggest bulk of evidence comes from three trials that took place between 2002 and 2007 in um, sub-Saharan Africa. And those trials showed that there was a real clear link between circumcision and HIV and that actually men who were circumcised had up to 60% reduction in risk of catching HIV. So it's it's reducing their risk of catching HIV rather than transmitting it? Yeah, so the, the, um, the trials showed that the risk is reduced from um, women to men, but not the other way around. 
Okay, and over 10 nations have taken part in this massive campaign. Yeah, so there's 14 countries um, in southern and eastern Africa that have been sort of picked out by um, the World Health Organization, UNAIDS and PEPFAR as countries which um, would really benefit from a circumcision campaign because they have really high levels of HIV and relatively low levels of circumcision already. And so the hope is that circumcising about 80% of men who are kind of a reproductive age in those countries could reduce HIV transmission by as much as 50%. Not too long ago, you went out to Zambia. How were people reacting to the campaign? Yeah, so I went to Zambia for a reporting project and um, it was really interesting to see how prevalent these campaigns were there. Um, There's lots of advertising and posters and um, I spoke to lots of people who were waiting, for instance, to go and be circumcised in clinics. So it's something that is, is clearly very much in people's consciousness. But having said that the levels of circumcision haven't actually reached the targets that um, the the campaigners would hope. So there's only about 15% of uh, the target number of men have been circumcised across all of those countries. What sort of barriers need to be overcome to reach those targets? Um, That's a good question. It's something that is being researched at the moment. Um, Some of the biggest issues seem to be concerns about whether it's going to be painful or whether people can go back to work quickly enough after the operation. And there's actually... Lots of work going into new devices and surgery-free devices that might make those kinds of things easier. Um, And obviously, in populations where circumcision isn't the norm anyway, it's quite a big cultural shift. So it's taking a while for people to come round to the idea that it's something that will be really beneficial for their health. And I know that, for instance, when I was in Zambia, the US embassy was doing some work with local um, tribal chiefs who are heads of tribes that don't normally circumcise their men to try and explain the benefits of circumcision for HIV and try and get those leaders on board. And one chief uh, you actually met, Chief Mumena, he's leader of the Kayondi tribe. What What did he have to say? So he actually said that he didn't really know about um, circumcision and the benefits of circumcision for HIV until his son came to him and told him that he was thinking about getting circumcised. And that tribe is traditionally non, non-circumcising and it's a big a big point of difference between different tribes. Some tribes do circumcise and the ones that don't, you know, it's not part of their culture and they, they think it's a bit strange. So he was saying that, you know, really he was very reluctant for his son to do it. But eventually when he became aware of the benefits, he decided to get circumcised himself. And we've got a clip from Chief Mumena um, here telling us how he feels about the campaign. The prevalence rate is much lower amongst the circumcising people. And we've seen this in our own country. We've seen it in other parts of the world. What is a culture worth if it can't protect those people that are in that culture? It therefore demands that those of us that are leaders must be able to take a proactive stand and be able to say, this is it. What is leadership if you're not going to lead others into the good things? It is something that I would die for because I have seen the real effect and the true effect, the positive response to male circumcision. That was Chief Mimena of the Kaondi tribe in Zambia. You can listen to the full interview and read Kat's feature at nature.com slash news. Thanks, Kat and Richard. That's it for this week. Join us next time when we'll be exploring the crystal structure of Botox. I'm Noah Baker. And I'm Thea Cunningham. Thanks for listening and thanks also to SoCal Velo One for the Veterans Day music in Kerry's package.